For the first three months of this year, we're doing a series on the three jewels or the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And last month, our focus was on taking refuge in the Buddha. And this month, we've been focusing on taking refuge in the um, Dhamma. And we had a couple of really wonderful talks by Arv and by Lauren about this subject. And then um, with Rodney's retreat, we didn't meet last week. So this will be our last session on this subject. And so what I thought I would do was give a kind of review about what we've talked about this past month, along with uh, some of my own thoughts, and then make sure that you have time to reflect uh, to share your own reflections on what you've learned this month about taking refuge in the Dharma and maybe things you might want to make a bigger part of your practice. Whatever you might have thought about as you've investigated this topic. And when I spoke about taking refuge in the Buddha, I used a framework of Outer Refuge, Inner Refuge, and Innermost Refuge that I borrowed from Jack Cornfield, who he might have borrowed from some other teachers or vice versa. It seems to be around there in many talks. So I'm going to use that same structure today since I think it helps us to consider the different ways in which we can take refuge. And Lauren and R both gave us beautiful examples of taking refuge of, at all three of these levels in their talks earlier this month. So first I'm going to start with this outer refuge. So taking refuge on the outer level to me means just simply taking refuge in the teachings in terms of knowing about the teachings. These teachings that Jack Cornfield called the teachings of generosity, compassion, and wisdom that bring freedom. And I mean, I really like that. That's a beautiful way to describe them. So, you know, the outer refuge, to me, it's this taking refuge in the simplest and most obvious ways. You know, by learning about the teachings, getting to know what they are, getting a sense of whether they might be a good source of wisdom for you or which parts make sense to you. And ways you can do this would include coming to Sims and hearing Dharma talks or listening to other teachers, reading books, studying the suttas. All these are different ways that you might take refuge in the Dhamma on the outer level. You know, this learning about and becoming familiar with the teachings. And when I was thinking about taking refuge at this outer level, I found myself being reminded of one of those ox herding pictures we studied last year. And the picture I thought about was the one where the ox herder finds the footsteps of the ox. And some of you might remember this, how at first the ox herder is just wandering around, lost, confused, discontented with his or her life, not knowing what they're looking for. And then they find these footsteps and they think, hmm, maybe there's something here worth looking into. Maybe I ought to kind of follow this and head this way and see if maybe this is the ox. And I feel like this outer refuge in the Dharma can 
feel something like this, you know, especially at the beginning of our practice. We don't really know if this is the right way or not, but we're curious and we want to find out a little bit more about this. And Lauren gave a really nice example of this kind of refuge in her talk um, when she mentioned being in a really difficult place in her life and coming across Pema Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart. And so she got the book, she took it home, she read it, and was able to find some refuge in the way Pema Chodron's words helped her to make sense of what she was going to. And in the hope she began to feel like, you know, maybe there are some answers here. And this was before she actually started to practice herself. So it's really kind of hearing something and thinking, hmm, maybe these footsteps are worth investigating. But, of course, we can uh, realize, too, that this outer refuge isn't something we only engage in at the beginning of our practice when we just want to get some idea of what Buddhism is all about. We can continue to study, to read the suttas for ourselves so we really know what is there. Maybe we will want to go deeply into different interpretations of the teachings from different teachers, from different commentators, from different traditions, and find inspiration and greater understanding in this way. So study is something that can always be a good and helpful part of our practice. And I expect that all of you have done some of this yourselves and found some particular teachings or stories or sayings that really speak to you and can encourage you when you feel frustrated or confused or in need of guidance. And Arv and, Laura and Lauren illustrated this too in their talks when they spoke about specific teachings or specific stories about the Buddha that inspired them. Arv talked about the teachings on impermanence and on clinging and aversion. And Lauren talked about the five reflections that were subject to aging, to illness, to death, Sooner or later, we'll be separated from everything that is dear to us. So our only real possessions of our actions and whatever we do, good or evil, and the effects of those. And for myself, I feel like I'm right there with them, with these types of teachings, because for me, too, some of the most important teachings are ones like the ones they shared related to the noble truths. You know, remembering our practices about investigating the truth of dukkha, which means being willing to take in the fact that painful experience, change, and impermanence are part of life. Or in other words, being willing to take in those five reflections that Lauren talked about. Or it means being willing to pay attention to suffering and dissatisfaction the suffering and dissatisfaction we create for ourselves when we're not willing to accept these truths of change and impermanence. In other words, the suffering brought about by clinging and craving, as well as the relief we feel when we're actually able to let go and simply be with the reality of change. Those same things, themes that I've talked about. 
And then in addition to these, we can't forget about that really big delusion that we all fall prey to, the delusion of the solid and permanent self. That delusion that makes us get so caught up in our self-image to feel that we really ought to be in control of what happens to us and that everything that happens is somehow a reflection on us. So if it's pleasant, we're a good person. If it's unpleasant, we're a bad person. And even if intellectually we don't believe it, on some level we can feel like this true. It's This is true and that delusion can really cause so much worry and so much pain. But as I think we all realize and as Arm and Lauren demonstrated really clearly in their talks, truly taking refuge in the Dharma is more than just being familiar with the teachings or identifying the ones that sound inspiring to you or that make sense to you. So it's not just an intellectual exercise. Um, and this brings us to the next level of refuge in the framework, the inner refuge. And here we shift from an emphasis on reading and studying the teachings themselves to our own inner experience as we apply them and come to understand them through our practice. So this is the level where we come and see for ourselves. We don't just think about the Dharma as a nice philosophy, we actually practice. And if we go back to those ox herding pictures, we might think of this as the stage where that ox herder really starts the process of catching and training and learning how to ride that ox. So at this level, we come to understand the teachings through our own practice and to recognize the things that really support us. So in his talk, Arv gave us a really wonderful example of how he came to terms with the truth of impermanence and the pain of clinging to what's already changing when he went through all sorts of ups and downs and losses and transformations with his relationships and his job and his home over the past year. And so this sort of shows, you know, the truths that the Buddha taught really come home to us, not on the cushion only, but in our daily lives. And in her talk, really, uh, Lauren um, really brought home the reality of dukkha, talking about coming to terms with aging and sickness and death. And I know some of us here are dealing with these realities in very immediate and very painful ways. And others of us are enjoying pretty good health right now. But even if we are, we may be coming more and more aware that, you know, it could be otherwise. COVID certainly brought that truth home to us that if we're healthy now, it could easily be otherwise. And I think also as we age, we realize more and more clearly that not only could it be otherwise, but a time is going to come when it will be otherwise. And these realities really hit us in very uh, um, clear ways. And I can add another example um, a small everyday example about this third 
part of the teaching, the identification with self. And this kind of shows that this kind of mysterious teaching on anatta can really come into our everyday lives. So when I was growing up, I took piano lessons. But as I got older, I kind of let go of playing the piano because a lot of times I was too busy to practice or I didn't have a piano available or, well, you know, there's always all kinds of excuses. But now that I'm retired and I have more time, I've decided, okay, it's time to get back into playing the piano. But what I'm finding is this really isn't that easy. And, of course, there are the problems you'd expect, you know, being out of practice, having the bumbling fingers, all of that stuff. But I'm finding that the hardest part really has to do more with my mind. I get so caught up in my ideas about how I should be able to do this that it gets really frustrating when I can't do what I think I should. You know, I, why can't, why should I be struggling to play something I used to be able to play when I was 13 years old? I'm like, like, err. And then bad memories come back of a recital that didn't turn out too well or some criticism my teacher made about how I played this certain piece that I'm working on again. So pretty soon I think, okay, enough. No more piano today. I can't stand this anymore all because of these images and ideas I have about me and what I should be able to do and be. So I'm finding it really is a practice just to sit down at the keyboard and do the work just for today without worrying about all this other stuff. And it occurs to me that it's not so different than sitting down on the cushion to meditate every day. Even though our minds are screaming, you know, you aren't doing this right, you don't know how to do this, this isn't a good sitting, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, there are lots of ways to work with this teachings on the self, even in our everyday lives. So whether we're dealing with the realities of aging or of loss and disappointment or the pain of our attachment to our self-image, I think we all know it really takes a lot of courage and a lot of practice and a lot of wisdom to get to the place where we're really willing to let go or let be and find some refuge and relief. And I don't think we really get there without feeling the pain of our own craving and clinging and our resistance and our identification and without realizing the amount of pain we're causing ourselves when we get into those places where we're raging against things that have already happened or getting caught up in our anger and resentment and self-pity and self-blame. But when we actually realize these things for ourselves and feel them within ourselves, then we can let go and stop and find refuge because we really understand then that it just doesn't make any sense to do anything else. And this brings us to the final level of refuge, that innermost refuge. When we see the truth of the teachings based on our own experience, then we can really take refuge in a fuller and deeper way. And we might think of this innermost refuge as a kind of a natural progression from the inner refuge, 
that we take in the Dharma when we actually begin to work with the teachings and do our own practice. And this innermost refuge might be found in the teachings that for us are more than just interesting ideas or instructions we're trying to work with, but truths we know for ourselves. So we can say really unshakably without any doubt, yes, this is the way it is. I know this is the way it is. So we take refuge in what we really know based on our own experience. And as Lauren mentioned in her talk, it isn't always so easy to take refuge when the things that we know are difficult truths. Like change, loss, impermanence, not self. And yet I think there's kind of a peace in really acknowledging even for these difficult things. Yes, this is the way it is. And I remember one time hearing someone sharing about how on a retreat they had a really strong experience of impermanence. And it was kind of frightening and destabilizing, but it was convincing too. And then they went back home, you know, to their daily life and the intensity of the experience faded. And they were kind of wondering, well, what do I really make of this now? And then at one point, somebody they knew died really suddenly and unexpectedly. And naturally, you know, they felt shock, they felt grief, they felt pain, you know, all those things that you would expect that we would naturally feel. But they said that at the same time, even the midst, in the midst of this, there was this understanding, you know, ah, yeah, this is the way it is. This could come at any time to any of us. And so in the middle of the grief and the pain, there was this kind of acceptance that let them just be with the sadness, be with the grief without feeling the need to get lost in all that denial and blame that we can sometimes add to our grief that causes us so much suffering. And this brings me to an even deeper level of refuge, maybe, the refuge we can take in the present moment, in being able to know and to feel Right now, this is the way it is for me. And to be willing to be there because we know that any other reaction, really, you know, denying what's happening, being angry about, about what's happening, craving something different, that's just going to add more pain to the pain we already feel. Or if what we have is pleasant, destroy the pleasure we're experiencing. So we might think of this as taking refuge in equanimity, willing to be present in the midst of whatever might be arising. Um, Enos Friedman, who's one of the teachers at the Insight Meditation Center in California that Gil Fronsdale leads, talks about this refuge in a really beautiful way. So I'd like to share what she says with you. She said, um, I realized that the one thing I could do in the face of tragedy, in the face of great suffering, and this is my comment that I think this 
probably would also apply to our small sufferings as well. The one thing I could do is to show up for it, to be present for it. It was really the only thing I could do. There's a choice in those moments of suffering where we can either rail against it, which doesn't add anything good to this situation, or we can actually be there and witness it, meet it, and respond in whatever way we can without adding suffering to the situation. When we meet the suffering and we don't add anything else, that's where wisdom can arise. And that's where I found my first feeling of, ah, this is what refuge is. So I think that's a beautiful expression for me. And also I might add that this innermost refuge is taking refuge in, in each moment of freedom that we do have in the present moment. That moment when we're actually aware and mindful and we're not grasping, we're not pushing away, we're not lost in confusion, we're just there. We take refuge in those moments, even if they're really fleeting, when we actually are free of greed, of hatred, of delusion. Maybe it's only for a moment, but for that moment we're free and we find refuge. So here are three ways we can think of of taking refuge. Taking refuge in the teachings of the Dhamma themselves through reading and study and reflection. Taking refuge in the Dhamma through putting the teachings into practice. And taking refuge in the truth itself, in our own realization of that truth on the deepest level and as it's revealed to us in each moment. All valid, all important, all available to each of us as integral parts of our practice. All ways we can find refuge. So let's just sit together for a moment. And I'd like to share with you a poem by Puna from the anthology, The First Free Women, about refuge in the Dhamma. She says, fill yourself with the Dharma. When you are as full as the full moon, burst open and make the dark night shine. So thanks everybody for your attention, for being here. And now we have some time for you to share your own reflections about refuge in the Dhamma. So for those of you who um, might need to say goodbye now, because other things and other responsibilities are calling you this would be a good uh, maybe a good time to leave and we're really glad that you could be with us for our sit and our Dharma talk and then once we kind of settle into our numbers of people 
then I will go ahead and uh, break you up into our small groups for discussion today. And as I said before, I invite you to just share uh, what you've learned considering this topic over the month, maybe your own experiences of taking refuge in the Dhamma, maybe particular teachings that really are a refuge to you, or maybe um, something about how you feel like you might want to explore this practice of taking refuge in the Dhamma more deeply, whatever it is for you that you would like to share. So I'll go ahead and divide you into groups, and we'll have about 15 minutes or so um, to share with each other. Okay, welcome back, everybody. I see all the faces appearing. <laughs> Good to see you returning. It looks like my glasses are still a little bit sunglassy. I went outside in this beautiful sunshine we have, which amazes me. <laughs> well, you were doing your discussion, and it's, it's nice out there. It's really nice out there. It feels like spring is coming, even though we were supposed to be having snow. So now we have some time for um, any of you to share any of your uh, insights that uh, came up during your discussion or questions or thoughts you might have. Um, the floor is open to all of you. Oh, okay, wonderful. Lillian and Nikhil, I'm not sure which of you or maybe both of you. Um, Please go yeah, right I just, ahead. I appreciate your story about uh, your experience playing the piano. Um, <laughs> I think it's something I relate to a little bit as well. I used to play the violin when I was younger and um, it's something where I took almost 10 years off and I started playing again recently. And it's interesting to me how many parallels I've noticed between mindfulness practice and practicing an instrument. And I think a lot of what you were saying about feeling like, Oh, this is like a bad practice session or like I didn't accomplish what I felt like I should have. Like um, it's funny. Like I've, I've had those thoughts as well with both, in my instrument as well as mindfulness and trying to be able to bring that, um, that kind of like equanimity to, you know, it's just the fact that I practiced, um, is, um, it's helpful. Um, so yeah, I just, I appreciated that. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm so, <laughs> I find myself being really surprised at how difficult that self image attachment makes it to just do something that ought to be maybe kind of fun and kind of interesting. It's a challenge. So I'm glad that you could relate to that too. And, and I'm, I'm thinking that there are other things besides instruments that we all have these same kind of reactions to. So maybe that's a, a good way to explore our attachment to self. So thank you. Um, let's see. Okay, Judith. Um, yeah, that's, that's the part of your talk I also related to. <laughs> um, partially because I used to teach piano and I was telling my group about the difference between teaching children and teaching adults hmm. and how it's a rare adult 
who will persist because of all the mental stuff and all of the not being perfect immediately. And whereas for children, that's not an issue. They just, they don't have the same expectations. And then also because um, I've been teaching myself classical guitar, which I've wanted to learn for many years. And I, you know, I've been playing other guitar, but not classical because it was too hard. And it is still too hard. And my hands don't work well anymore because I'm old. And yet for the past few years, I have persisted for the first time. And I think it is because of the practice and that I have been able to let go of that feeling that I have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not perfect, I shouldn't do it. And uh, so anyway, that was that was my thoughts. Mm, thank you, Judith, for sharing that. And this that is so true. I mean, it is that feeling that we have to be perfect or I shouldn't do it that gets in the way of so much, so much, you know, and that's all about self. It's all about self-image. Yep. And I think what you said about adults, too, how adults don't persist because all of that stuff gets in their way, whereas children can go ahead and learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a really good <laughs> – I'm glad that I included that story in this talk because it's it is a really good lesson. It is a really good lesson. And you guys are inspiring me to persist with my music practice. <laughs> Yay. Uh, Mike. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so there's so many things I could say about the, uh, the Dharma and just the, uh, the benefit of, of practicing, um, Rodney's, uh, sessions last week. And one thing stood out to me was when he said, um, it was just so simple and, and so profound, but he said, leave the mind alone. And, mm-hmm. and for me, when I'm, um, when I'm suffering or struggling, I, I go back and forth. I vacillate. Sometimes I'll leave it alone, but then other times I'll get back caught up in the stories and the mental movies and, um, yeah, trying to control the mind. And I, I feel like I've, um, I've made some progress in that regard over the years. And then, yeah, there are other times where I, I get kind of stuck in that place again of not leaving the mind alone, but uh, really, really feeding into it and then proliferating the, the suffering. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a constant, uh, dance and the, the work is in progress for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think we can all really relate to what you have said. And I, yeah, I really got a lot about out of that weekend as well. And I don't know how many of you attended, probably several of you, but it was really good. And that advice to leave the mind alone, it's so hard to do. And it's so wrapped up in this understanding of anatta and one of the ways to understand, you know, to explore that. And I also feel the same way as like I will, there are times when I have the wisdom to leave it alone. And then other times when I'm right back in there enmeshed, 
<laughs> let go and then I get enmeshed, let go, I get and yeah, it is a work in progress. And I think if we keep going through that process, eventually we will understand deeply enough that we don't get so enmeshed, but I don't know. <laughs> part of it might be part of being in this human body and human mind that it's always going to happen, but at least we can see it. But thank you, yeah. Work for all of us. I mean, when it comes to taking refuge in the Dhamma, this is one of the places it's hard to find refuge, but when you do leave the mind alone, you do find refuge. Thank you. Uh, Lauren. Speaking about the mind, I've been thinking about the chitta, which is sometimes translated as the heart mind. And then I've been trying to think, well, how how does that work, the heart mind? Because it seems so separate to me. And um, and since it seems separate, you know, um, how does it what's the relationship between the heart mind and can they be integrated and the reason that came up as the thing that i want to investigate right now is i'm trying to i'm working with the anapanasati instructions and they say the whole there's what four direct instructions on the chitta and i realize that i'm at the first level of outer with the chitta because i I don't know the heart mind, you know, so every instruction, it's it says be sensitive to the cheetah. And I think, well, what exactly is the cheetah? And then it says gladden the cheetah. And then in the end, it says release the cheetah. And it doesn't have a section just on the mind separately. So to me, that's a big thing to investigate and it goes back to your um, poem at the beginning. Um, the way is not the sky, the way is the heart, is in the heart. So the cheetah is partly the heart, or maybe it's totally the heart. Anyway, I'm, I'm very interested in, in understanding and, and having an innermost understanding of the cheetah. And I realize I'm really at the outer outer one right now but I am going to to uh, investigate it I'm gonna you know I was doing it when I was meditating today because I was trying to even if I don't know the cheetah I'm asking the question you know what is the cheetah is the mind there or is anyway yeah so um, so anyway the the mind the mind is interesting and the heart is interesting, and I know they're at the heart of this practice, but I just don't quite know how they work together. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lauren. Thank you. I'm I'm a little unsure myself too. I mean, I I try to for myself not to make a huge dichotomy between mind and heart. And say, oh, this is the mind. This is not so good. This is the heart. This is good. I don't. I don't really want to do that. Um, but to understand all the workings of all of this, and and what is, you know, mind, thought, heart, 
awareness. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do before we really understand these things on the innermost level. And, and sometimes I wonder if it's easy to get so confused by terminology that we have trouble to understand. But thank you for bringing that up. This will give us something to think about and investigate in our our own explorations of mind and heart. And I think with that, it's probably time um, for me to go ahead on to our final closing and announcements. So thanks, you all, for your really good uh uh, sharing and things that you brought up. It, I think you must have had some really interesting discussions because your uh, what you've shared with the group here has been really interesting to me. 